All right, so you can open your Bible to 1 John. I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 28, down to chapter 3, verse 3. And it says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness shall be born of him. See what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stacy. Well, good morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is James Walden. I'm one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to, to open up this text with you and to see what God would have for us this morning. Now, <clears throat> if you are at all aware of the evangelical universe, and it is a strange universe, we have our heroes and we have our villains, and sometimes it turns out the heroes are villainous. But this, this week we had a fairly startling discovery, although it perhaps should not have been so startling to us, uh, that one of the great defenders of the faith and apologists, Ravi Zacharias, who died in May of 2020, after an internal investigation of his organization, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, has been exposed as a uh, predator who has systematically victimized women throughout the course of his ministry. It was startling discovery, as I said, and deeply, deeply disappointing. Much of his uh, life was spent hiding this in a very effective way. He, he hid in plain sight in some ways. But after his death, phones were able to be retrieved, his technology could be found, numbers, messages, all this was revealed. Dan Patterson, who was the former head of RZIM, that ministry, in Australia, wrote on his Facebook page on Wednesday night, quote, I feel a profound sense of the fear of the Lord, knowing that one day I too will give an account, where like the RZ report, everything done under the shroud of darkness will be made known. Jesus comes to restore justice through judgment. Oh, how I wish Ravi had repented. Now, we're careful, as the Apostle Paul warns us, we don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, Paul writes, each one will receive his commendation from God or his condemnation. Then we will receive our reward or our rebuke. But even though the day has not yet come, there is, as we've said, revelations been brought to light. As Paul writes elsewhere, the sins of some are conspicuous, parading ahead of them on the way to judgment, while the sins of others appear later. 
and Ravi's sins have appeared even after his death. You know, it's been said the two most important days of your life is today and that day. That day will determine the significance of your life. And it will determine our destiny. Will we be prepared for that most important day of our life? How will we prepare for it today? As C.S. Lewis wrote in his wonderful essay, Weight of Glory, in the end, that face which is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And yet here, John tells us, abide in him so that you may be confident. How will we do that? Would you pray with me as we begin to look? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that instructs us and makes us wise for salvation so that we, even we, can be confident on the most important day of our lives. We pray for that wisdom now, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. <clears throat> There's two responses to that great and awful day, the great and glorious day. One is confidence and the other is shrinking back in shame. And on that day, we read in the Scriptures that many will shrink back in shame. In fact, John writes in the, the great book of Revelation that on that day, men who perhaps have been used to getting away with things, men of power and of recourse, who have been able to evade their consequences, will do so no longer. So in Revelation on the screen, you'll read this, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, right? ones who are able to get away with it. Everyone, from slave to free, in fact, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks to hide them. Fall on us, hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Why do they hide? Why do the powerful and the rich the proud hide on that day because their deeds are evil. Maybe when you were a kid, you could relate to this when dad came home. <laughs> if it was a good day, you ran to the door. If it was a rough day, maybe you hid. Right? If dad was a disciplinarian, that was the threat in my household. Wait till your father comes home. <laughs> Not always a good threat, by the way. But nevertheless, they hid. See, in, in every, every religion, there is a sense of a day of reckoning. Whether it's karma or Allah or Yahweh, there is a day of judgment, a, a reckoning happening, a weighing of our lives. 
And Christianity is quite unique in this regard. It's quite strange because it says that the judge of the universe has, been, has conferred all judgment. Yahweh, the creator God, has given all judgment to a human being, to a man named Jesus of Nazareth. As the Apostle Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus. And so each one of us will receive what is due us for the things we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. So, some will be terrified on this day, others confident, and some will be oblivious that it's coming, unprepared and surprised by what they see. Especially religious people, Paul, writing to a religious audience, says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge others for evil, yet you do the same things, that you will escape judgment? Do you presume upon the riches of of his kindness and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't think because you're simply a Jew, a person of God, or because you call yourself a Christian. Do not think that you will escape judgment. And this is what he goes on to say on the screen. You'll see it. It's on this day of wrath. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being, Jew and Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is the frame of John's whole concern of confidence. It's it's our practical righteousness. We cannot have confidence on that day without it. We cannot. John goes on to say in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who is righteous, who practices righteousness, is born of him. And then he sort of talks about being born of God in the following verses, but he picks up the thread again in verse 4, talking about everyone who practices sin. And look at verse 6 with me in chapter 3. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 7, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Verse 10, by this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is of the devil. There's no way to have confidence before the throne without practicing righteousness, without a clear conscience. Verse 
And so this is his command, abide in him so that you might have confidence on that day and not shrink away. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, the very next verse after 29, where he says, if he's righteous, you know all who are righteous are born of him. He seems to get on a rabbit trail. He seems to take a side path. And he gives our second command of the passage. See, see what love the Father has given to us. He seems to be distracted by the, this note of born of God. It seems to put him off on this thinking about the being born of God. Can you believe the love of God for us? That we would be called the children of God, and we are. We actually are, is what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. And I love the phrase, kind of love. The word, what kind is this? Originally meant, from what country? What exotic creature is this? This is not unlike anything I've ever experienced in my world. This love. How odd is this love? How strange that I would be called a child of God. And not just called, but really made to be his child. And why is that strange and unusual for me? I'll just use me as an example. Because I know, friends, that as I self-reflect... I have many reasons to shrink back in shame when he appears. I don't know the full depths of my heart, and perhaps that's a mercy of God. But I know enough. I've seen enough of its cancerous fruit, whether it's slurred speech of slurring another person, whether it's gossip, whether it's lustful thoughts that have been entertained, whether it's a, a, a nursing of bitterness and hatred toward others, whether it's uncareful speech and shading of the truth, I have reasons to shrink back in shame. And yet, God calls me His child. And not just now He calls me this, he predestined me, Paul says, for adoption. Before I sinned, before I was born, he knew all the sins I would commit and have yet to commit and nevertheless, as Paul says, lavish this love upon me. And brothers and sisters, on that day when he appears, he will love us no less. When dad comes home, he loves us. He's like a good parent. He will discipline. He will correct. He will love you no less. Well, he goes on to say in verse 1, not only what kind of love is this that we would be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is it didn't know Him. If the world remains unimpressed with us, and outwardly, we're not very impressive. <laughs> Even though we are called the sons and daughters of God. We are gods and goddesses, as it were, walking in broad daylight. Children of the divine. Yet the world remains unimpressed. In fact, we're quite invisible to the world. But that's not strange. Jesus, who created the world, entered it, and the world did not recognize Him but pushed him out of the world. I want you to look around the room right now. 
And look at these faces. You can see half of them. <laughs> On the charity, you know, judgment of charity, as those who have confessed Christ, these are the children of God. The children of God. The world overlooks us. The world does not recognize us. Our Father does. He calls us my child. Let's not overlook one another. Let's recognize one another. In fact, all of creation groans for the revelation of the children of God, Paul says, because we're hidden in plain sight right now. It, it longs for our obvious revelation in glory, which is what he goes on to say in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and yet what we will become has not yet appeared. But creation longs for the liberation of the children of God in what Paul calls our adoption. But aren't we already adopted? Yes, but our adoption is not evident. It's not manifest yet. What is the manifest adoption of the children of God? Well, Paul defines it. The redemption of our bodies. Then our full glory will be seen. And you will be tempted to worship a child of God. C.S. Lewis writes. You see, as Paul says, when Christ appears, He will transform our lowly bodies into His glorious body. Or what John says here about this, what we will become has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we know, we don't think, it's not our opinion, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. And that includes our bodies. This is what Paul says. He says, listen, it's what's sown imperishable is raised, or sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body because the first man was a natural man. He was a lump of clay in whom God breathed His Spirit to become a living soul. But the last man, became a life-giving spirit as his resurrection. And right now, you, you bear the marks of the man of dust, but you also belong to the man of heaven, which means you will also bear his mark. And what is buried, perishable, corruptible, will be raised, imperishable, uncorruptible. And this is what Paul says. Look, it's a mystery. What we will become has not yet been uh, evident. But... We won't all be in the grave, but we will all be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be transformed. This is our destiny. We were predestined to be holy and blameless before Him. We were, we were predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is more than just our bodies. It's our souls will be pure as He is pure. In fact, St. Augustine conjectured that it's not that we get a new body and then we get it right. He says, when Christ returns, the joy and rapture that we experience will be so powerful, it will overflow and reconstitute our bodies. We will be changed from the inside out. That's amazing. Now, it's also a conjecture, but it's fun to think about because what we will become is not yet evident. But we know we will be like him. We will be pure, immortal.
That's what you're looking at around this room. The world doesn't recognize this, but it will. On the screen you'll see for Paul says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. We do glimpse some of this now. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I'm fully known. So we keep leaning into this mystery. Uh, I referenced Lewis. This is what he said in, in full. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you, as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is, as ours, is to ours as is a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry. Gentlemen, the woman sitting next to you is an immortal. It is immortals, Lewis says, that we snub and exploit. It was immortals that Ravi Zacharias abused. Either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We know by His grace we who have trusted in Him will be everlasting splendors. We will see Him as He is, which is what He goes on to say in verse 2. Not only will we be like Him, but why will we be like Him? Because we will see Him as He is. But won't all see Him as He is? Won't all behold His glory? Yet some will greet him with delight, while others with fear and loathing. Many will dread his presence. Like Adam in the garden, he, they will hide from God's presence. It's for this reason, because our frail and sinful nature is like so much stubble before God, the consuming fire, that God tells Moses, no one shall see me and live. And yet here, not only will we see Him and live, we will see Him and thrive, while others will see Him and hide and receive an incurable shame. How then is it that others will greet Him with a smile, with eagerness and overflowing joy? It's because they know they are His children. They know Daddy's home. They know they will be made like Him. They know they are loved. They know that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. And they pin all their hopes on it. The world will see Him in His glory as an enemy. But we who know His love, as Calvin put it, I love this, will see him as a long-awaited friend. And what do you do when a long-awaited friend comes? You don't hide, you run to him. I'm so glad you're here. And guys, 
To say that we will see him as he is doesn't mean we don't see him now. We do. Maybe not face to face, maybe as in a mirror dimly, but we see him now. Look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, we all, as Christians, we all with unveiled face, like Moses when he went to go meet face to face with the Lord, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in that same image from one degree of glory to another. That's happening right now. We're being transformed right now as we behold the face of God in Christ. As we contemplate it, we don't see Him fully, but we see Him in part and in truth. And we're being changed now. Now, it's painfully slow, isn't it? (laughs) The change is horrendously slow, it feels to us. When we see Him as He is, it will be instantaneous change. But here's here's the reality. The more you behold His glory, the more you will be changed. So behold His glory. In fact, that's exactly John's point in the last verse, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. John has not been on any rabbit trail. He's been exactly where he wants to go. If you want to be confident on that day, have this hope in you. Thus you will be pure as he is pure, righteous as he is righteous, you will be transformed. The road to righteous confidence on the most important day of your life is a path called hope. Do you have it? Hope requires two things. One, a promise worth believing in, a promise worth staking your life on. And friends, we have that in spades here. Right? Do we not? An everlasting inheritance that is so good that Paul says, I just hope you can just get a glimpse of how good this is. Your future is so bright, you need shades. You need multiple shades. You need the shades that when you watch the eclipse, you need, it's, it's brighter than the sun, your future. And so you have this tremendous promise that's given to you. And when God gives us his promise, it's, it's trustworthy. You can hang all your hopes on it. Now, for some of us, we know that hope. We have it in our hearts. We haven't maybe nursed that hope as we ought, but we have it. For others of you, that hope just sort of hangs out there in midair. I want you to know that promise is for you. It's for you. So grab it. Receive it. Purify yourself by believing it. That's the second thing you must do to have this kind of hope. You need to have a promise worth trusting in, and then you need to trust it. You need faith. And you can pray for that too. God, give me faith to believe this. He loves to give the gift of faith. But that's not just about about conversion or a one-time decision we make. We have to feed our hope. We have to feed our our faith continually. As Landon shared about the fast, Christianity is not about ultimately self-denial. We deny ourselves positively so that we might love others well and serve others well. But finally, the Christian life is not a a negative ethic. Suffer. That's not Christianity. Christianity is joy. And for the joy set before you, suffer for a little while. But joy is the tenor of Christianity. Hope, inexpressible. 
That hope has to feed your heart or we'll die out here. And so we fast so that we can feast. We fast from all the garbage that fills our, our the, that, that, that occupies the windows of our soul, that what our eyes take in, right? So whether that's, whether that's social media, I and mean, again, it's not that social media is wrong or sinful, but what we feed on can so quickly starve our hearts. And instead of feasting on Christ, and what is that feast? It's to put ourselves into the presence of the Lord and to behold His glory. It's to do that in His Word. We saw that last week. Abide in Him. How do you abide in Him? Last week, let His Word abide in you. This week, how do I abide in Him? Hope in Him and you will abide. So I've got to put myself in the streams of grace. I have to put myself in His presence regularly. And if you feel weak, all the more so do you need to put yourself in His presence. I'm not spiritual enough to get in His presence. No, dead men are dragged into His presence and changed. They're resurrected. So come into the presence of Christ. Feed on His promises. You know, here's a promise I gave last week in the, in the benediction on, on the screen from 1 Thessalonians. Look, this promise has no conditions of how faithful you have been up to this point, how great and awesome your faith is. It's a promise to all those who would receive it. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, that is, make you holy completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a tall order. It is. It is massively tall. You don't even know how tall it is until you've tried to do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, trust in that promise. Rely and lean upon that promise. You know, one of my favorite English-speaking theologians, John Owen, his life looked a bit like a disaster. After so much promise, so much brilliance, one of the most prolific theologians I've ever known. I've never seen anyone produce as much. Perhaps there's a few out there that could compete with him. But despite his brilliance and his early success, and he spoke before Parliament, he was friends with Cromwell. I mean, he had all these powerful relationships. He was able to, like, help John Bunyan when he was in prison because of resources he had access to. He's very successful by every measure. But as the Anglican church began to pressure Puritans and persecute them for their nonconformist ways, his life began to look, from a world's perspective, less and less dignified, less and less glorious. The world did not recognize him as a son of God. He did not look from their vantage to be a son of God. At one point, John Owen was even homeless and penniless after so much uh, success. And yet, though this is the downward trajectory of his life, you know what was upward was his absolute fascination with the love of God in Christ. It just grew and grew and grew and grew. So he could say with John, see what kind of love. And, and in particular, his fascination kept falling on the face of his Lord Jesus. All of his books tend toward this. And the last book of his life is called The Glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what it is? It's just him going from the book of Genesis all the way through Revelation, tracing the beauties wonders and glories of Jesus Christ on every page. 
It's just him reveling in Christ's goodness. Isn't this incredible as he's going from page to page of the Bible? On his deathbed, he had finished it. And as he lay dying, the publisher comes in and says, Dr. Owen, good news, your book has been published. You know what his response was? That's great, but I'm about to go see him face to face, and I can't wait. May that be our hope, brothers and sisters. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to feed our hearts on this hope. Help, we, help us to feed it on this hope now as we worship, as we sing, as we behold your beauty in your sanctuary. And may we do that today, the most important day of our life, next to that last and great day. In Christ's name.